All right, good evening. I hope you've tuned in. Some folks tuned in as well online. Thank you for doing so. Uh, I hope you also have an outline tonight because we're going to be talking about a very unusual subject in some ways. Or when, when I say unusual, it's just one probably you haven't heard a lot of discussion about, a lot of teaching or preaching on. But we're going through the book of First Peter and that's why we come to this topic tonight. We're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so tonight I'd ask you to open God's Word with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, the title of the entire study through 1 Peter is called Hope in a World That Is Not Our Home. And Peter makes that case very clearly that we are strangers in this world, that we are, this is not our ultimate home, our ultimate destination. Tonight, I want to continue the study. We began last week. Uh, tonight's topic is called Following Jesus' Example, and you'll see where I got that title as we work our way through the text. But let me just take a moment. Some of you perhaps were not here last week, or maybe you slept since then, so let me remind you of what we talked about last week, where we have been, because it, we're going to just kind of start where we left off last Wednesday night. Last week, we talked about the hard truth, the hard truth. And here's the hard truth that we discussed last Wednesday night. We live in a pagan culture and we're called to submit to the governing authorities that are over us in that pagan culture. I'll say that one more time. We live in a pagan culture. And the hard truth is, we as believers are called to submit to the authorities that are over us in that culture. Now you may say, well, Pastor Keith, you're not being very nice calling the culture we live in, pagan. Well, can, can I just say I'm using Scripture for that word? Would you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Peter was writing to a group of people and reminding them they live in a pagan culture. And they are supposed to live differently than the pagans that are in that culture. Now, just to be clear, you have on your note sheet there a place that says key terms on the right-hand side. Let me give you the first key term. And you can write anything you want to in that note sheet, in that column, of course, as it's going as we're going through. But from time to time, I'll pause and say, here's a key term for you. So here's the first key term, and that is the word pagan simply means godless or without God. No reference point whatsoever to God. We live in a pagan culture. We live in a culture that is godless. And here's the hard truth we talked about last week. That God, not the ruling authorities, but God has instructed that we are to submit ourselves to the authority of those that are over us in this pagan culture. Now, just to re refresh your memory, let's pick up chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Parentheses, even the pagan authorities. Because he says, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king or to the, uh, as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will, notice this, it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. 
Peter says we are to submit to governing authorities for two reasons. He says in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. You do this for the Lord's sake. Not because the governing authorities are so good and they deserve your submission. But you do it for the Lord's sake. Because of your relationship with God. Because He has established the governing authorities in our society. He says you do it for the Lord's sake. And you do it because it is God's will. And we talked about this, but just one final reminder before we pick up and take off on new material. Let me remind you that when Peter wrote these words, the people were living scattered around the Roman Empire. The audience he was writing to was scattered across the Roman Empire. And their king, if you will, was the emperor Nero. Nero was a man who became insane And he mistreated and imprisoned and enslaved and murdered Christians simply because they were Christians. And yet, that's the man Peter is writing about in this text. When he says, submit to the the authorities, the governing authorities that are over you. So, that was all last week. I'm not going to rehash that anymore. You can go back and listen to it if, if you'd like. But that was last week's study. And we talked about this hard truth of having, by God's decree, having to submit to governing authorities that are over us, that are sometimes pagan authorities. They don't agree with our doctrine or our beliefs or that kind of thing. So, that was last week. Now, here's where we pick up new material. I want to ask this question. Is it ever justified not to submit to governing authorities? And I would say yes in a limited way. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight and then we'll move into another subject uh, in the text also. Um, here's, Here's the way I would explain it to you. Our obedience to governing leaders that are over us should not be simply blind obedience. And what I mean by that is that Sometimes, obeying God will mean disobeying the civil authorities. But we should be wary of doing that because it's so hard sometimes to discern between God's will and our will. Where do you draw the line? Between, yeah, I'm disobeying the governing authorities because this is God's will. Versus, I'm disobeying the governing authorities because I don't like them. I don't agree with their policies. I don't agree with their politics. So I'm going to disobey the governing authority. So, so that's going to be the balancing act, is how do you discern when it's okay to disobey the governing authorities uh, and not disobey God? So our guiding principle is simply this. You might want to write this down. Our guiding principle should be to follow the ruling authorities in our lives so long as their plans and policies do not oppose God's will. We'll say that again so you can write it down. Our guiding principle should be to follow the ruling authorities in our lives so long as their plans and policies do not oppose God's will. In other words, there is one supreme authority. Would you agree with that? And though he has told us to submit to the governing authorities that are over us, He is supreme over all governing authorities. Would you agree with that? He stands above all governing authorities. So when the civil authorities or the governing authorities would would instruct us to do something that is contrary to God's will, that's where we draw the line. That's where we say no. 
Now, the perfect example of that, and it was alluded to last week in that little video that we were watching, but let me show you in Scripture, Acts chapter 5, quickly, if you'll go there to Acts chapter 5. We'll give you a New Testament and an Old Testament example of this concept of disobeying the government authorities when they disobey God's will, or when they're pressuring you to disobey God's will. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 is where we're going to start. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. The Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. It was a religious court, not a governmental court. Yet, they had a lot of authority in their, in their society. And so they were going to be questioned by the high priest. Verse 28, we gave you, we the governing authorities... We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, that is, in the name of Jesus. Yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Paul's there for a second. They're saying, these governing authorities are saying, listen, we told you and we made it, cl- we made it plain, we made it clear not to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And yet... You've disobeyed the instruction we gave you. You disobeyed the decree that we made. And you have instead filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, with your preaching, with this idea that Jesus is alive. So how do you respond to that? Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that we might give repentance and forgiveness of sin to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. A couple of things I want you to notice. I want you to notice, first of all, that even in his disobedience, Peter is still respectful is still respectful while maintaining his commitment to God. And I want you to also notice that he is explaining why he's not not being obedient to what they've said. He's explaining to them why he's disobeying their decree, why he's disobeying their order. But the other thing I want you to notice is this. He's doing it because his faithfulness to the Lord depended on it. In other words, he's not doing this because he wants to rebel. He's not doing this because he just doesn't like them. He's doing it because his faithfulness to the Lord depended on his actions that he was taking. Now, that's a New Testament example. The perfect Old Testament example is found in Daniel chapter 6. Somebody asked me last week after the study, he said, now next week are we going to get into Daniel chapter 6? And I can't remember who it was, but... Uh, perfect example of what we're talking about. Daniel chapter 6, another example of not following man's laws when they conflict with God's clearly revealed will. Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. So the governing authorities are trying to find a reason to bring charges against Daniel. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. 
Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless, unless what, church? Talk to me, unless what? Unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Isn't that interesting? They even recognized. The only way we're going to get anything on him is if it's something related to the law of his God, because he is absolutely committed to the law of his God. So that's the only way we're going to, we're going to get anything on him. So, listen, you know the, probably how the story goes, but let's continue to read it. So the administrators, verse 6, and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors and governors, all have agreed that the king should have an, issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Uh, so the decree was issued. Verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published... He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Now, three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. You know why he did that? He was not trying to be a rebel. He was trying to be faithful to his God. So that's where you draw the line. You draw the line in this area is, I'm going to submit to the governing authorities out of respect for them, and more importantly, out of obedience to God. I'm going to submit to the governing authorities that are over me, even the pagan ones. Even the ones I didn't vote for. Even the ones I don't like. I'm going to submit to the governing authorities that are over me, because it is God's will that I do that, unless, unless it keeps me from doing God's will. Alright? So, that was First uh, Peter chapter 2. I want to read to you, if you go back to our text, I want to read to you verses 16 and 17 before we move on. Here's what he says. He says, live as free men. Now, re- remember now, he's talking about submission. Submission to the rulers that are over us. And he says, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Folks, if you would just underline that phrase, it will clarify so much of this issue for you. Live as servants of God. That that's your ultimate allegiance. That's your ultimate desire. That is your ultimate responsibility. Live as servants of God. And our responsibility to submit to human governments uh, is, is, is a very real responsibility even to those evil governments that, that we might not agree with. But, but trying to decide when you draw the line and where you draw the line, that requires that you approach it wisely, carefully, prayerfully, and biblically. And the best word I can give you is that word that I just showed you. Live as servants of God. What does that mean in that context, in your setting? What does that mean? Live as servants of God. And then he goes on to say, and I I love this summary. Show proper respect to everyone. Show proper... We need to put that on Facebook, don't we? Show proper respect to everyone. And then he says, love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. That's just... 
That's just such good advice. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. That's your responsibility. So he's talking about submission to rulers and the masters that are over us. And then, beginning in verse 18, he leaves this larger issue of submission to government authority. And Peter turns to a particular example of submission that was quite common in the first century, and that is the issue of slavery. Now, in our 21st century world, we understand slavery as a horrible violation of basic human rights. And quite frankly, when you read Peter's words regarding slaves, some of it on first read might sound shocking to you, and it might sound downright offensive, to be quite honest with you, because look at verse 18, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Slaves... Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I mean, it's one thing, look up here for a moment, it's one thing to say, okay, you need to submit to the governing authorities that are over you. God has, God has created this thing called government, and you need to submit to the, as a follower of God, you need to submit to the, to the authorities God has placed over you. It's one thing to say that. Then Peter goes to a very specific example, and he talks to slaves, Christian slaves, no doubt, because he's writing this letter to the church. So he's talking to slaves who are Christians. He said, now let me give you another example of submission, because the whole part of that chapter is about submission. He says, let me give you another example of submission. Not only should you submit to the governing authorities over you, but slaves, you need to submit to your masters. And then he says, not just the good ones, but even the bad ones, the harsh ones. Now this is where for us, in the 21st century, we look at this and say, that, that just sounds weird, that just sounds offensive, that just sounds wrong. And part of the problem is, we look at this, this issue from the lens of 16th century through 19th century America, rather than to look at it through the lens of what was slavery in the days of the Bible. Now, it still wasn't good. I want to make sure I say that. It was still slavery, and it wasn't good. But it was very different from the slavery that, that we have known in our history here in America. So, I want to take a little time, and I don't know that I've ever, ever done a study on this. I want to take a little time and summarize for you uh, this idea of slavery and what it was like in the days of the Bible. So the basic question that arises, and I've, heard, I've had people ask me this question. The question would be, why does the Bible not speak out strongly against slavery? I've had people ask me that question. Pastor, I don't understand. Why doesn't the Bible speak out strongly against slavery? And why do verses like these, in fact, almost support the practice of slavery? I mean, read it again. Verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I mean, it almost sounds like that Peter is writing in support of slavery. Now, what many fail to understand, and what I just alluded to, is that slavery in the Bible times was very different from slavery that has been practiced in our country in the, last, in, in the past centuries. Uh, Here's one of the main differences. Write this down if you're taking notes. One of the main differences is this. Slavery in the Bible was not based exclusively on race. 
That's an important point. Slavery in the Bible was not based exclusively on race. In other words, people were not enslaved because of the color of their skin or their nationality. That was not the reason they were enslaved. Uh, Write this down as a second point. In the Bible, slavery was based more on economics. When I say in the Bible, I mean what the Bible is describing in that society. In the days of the Bible might be a better way to say it. In the days of the Bible, slavery was based more on economics. It was a matter of social status. Uh, While certainly they were not free. Again, I want to emphasize, I'm not indicating that slaves had it easy. They certainly were not free, but slaves in the ancient world uh, should be regarded, you should view them more like a social class. In other words, if I could use kind of current day terminology, you had the upper class and the middle class and the lower class, and then you had slaves. So it was almost a social class, okay, in the days of the Bible. The Romans, so the question is, where did slaves come from? How how did this get started? And I don't know the whole history of that by any means, but I know the Romans basically acquired most of their slaves as spoils of war. You go in and you conquer a nation and you take the people to to your country and they become your slaves. They are the spoils of war. Men and women could become slaves because of the war. They, they conquered your, your country, and now you have become their slaves. But there are a couple of other ways that people became slaves in the Bible. First of all, sometimes people sold themselves into slavery, which is beyond our comprehension. People would sell themselves, and watch this, and even their children, in order to pay their debts... Like, like if I was really indebted and I could not pay my debts, one of the ways that I could deal with that enormous debt was that I could sell myself into slavery or I could even, God forbid, sell my children into slavery, pay my debts. Another way that, that people entered slavery was sometimes they entered slavery voluntarily so that they, watch this, so that they could choose their master and know that they had provided for their family. They're going to have a roof over their head. They're going to have a place to sleep. They're going to have food to eat. They're going to have to work, yes. But they know that they have, uh, in, this, in that society, how are you going to provide for your family? How are you going to make sure they don't starve to death? How, how are you going to provide a place for them to live? Sometimes, in dire circumstances, people would voluntarily... Uh, choose to be slaves. Uh, The term that you might want to write down, and I'll give you a definition and put it in that right-hand column of key terms. It's not a biblical term, but but it is a term that describes what happened in the Bible. That is indentured indentured servitude. Indentured servitude. It was a, a kind of labor where you work without a salary for a specific number of years. I come to you and I, and I say, I'll tell you what, I, I'll work for six years. I will be your slave for six years. And it's agreed upon time frame, indentured servitude. And I'm working for this agreed upon time frame in order to pay off my debt. And after I've paid off my debt, after I have fulfilled my obligation of those six years, I'm free. Now that's very different. Very different from slavery in the United States. So... um, what I'm wanting you to understand is that slavery in the Roman world was based more on social and economic and political issues 
uh, rather than on race or ethnicity. Um, so, let me give you another thing to write down regarding this. I'm trying to decide how much to, to share with you here. Uh, you might want to write this down. In the Old and the New Testament, in the Old and the New Testament, the practice of what you might call man-stealing is condemned clearly in Scripture. Man-stealing, of course, occurred in Africa in the 16th to the 19th centuries. That in Africa, uh, slave hunters would go in and they would hunt down these people that lived in Africa. They would capture them and steal them and they would sell them to a slave trader who would in turn take them to another to America or wherever, and then they would sell them to a slave owner. That practice was condemned in Scripture in both the Old and the New Testament. In fact, let me give you a reference. You can write it down and I'll read you the Scripture. In the Mosaic Law, it says in Exodus 21.16, Exodus 21.16, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Anyone who steals another and sells him must be put to death. That was in the Mosaic Law. Uh, another example, 1 first, first Timothy chapter 1. Uh, real quickly, if you'll turn there, I want to show you this from the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 1. In this New Testament reference, slave traders are listed among those who are ungodly and sinful people. 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 8 through 10. We know that the law is good, and if anyone uses it properly, we also know that law is made, uh, is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. And, and then he describes them as, watch this, the ungodly and sinful, the, the unholy and ir irreligious. And then he lists the kind of people he's talking about here. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, and perverts, for slave traders and liars, and perverts, so, so, uh, or liars and, and perjurers. Uh, so here, my point is simply this, that yes, slavery in the terms of, that we are familiar with it was condemned both in the Old and the New Testament. Again, I'm not trying to justify the slavery in the Bible. I'm just trying to help us get a picture of, of what it was really truly about. Uh, it still wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination it was still, you were enslaved and you were not free to do what you wanted to do. And you were forced to, to, you know, to do labor. Uh, but can I remind you that uh, the gospel's approach, the Bible's approach, basically is an inside-out approach. Here's what I mean by that. That in the Bible, the Bible doesn't come out and, though there are many references to slavery and references against slavery, the Bible doesn't make a campaign against slavery but really it's an inside-out approach. That is, that the gospel was the primary focus. And if the gospel changes a person's heart inside, it will change the person's actions. It's an inside-out approach. And that has been the approach. Uh, for example, in the book of Philemon. Do you know the book of Philemon was about a slave? And Paul was writing to Philemon to say, Listen, your slave ran away from you, and I met him. And he came to faith in Christ. He's a different person. And now because he's a different person, because his heart and his life has been changed, I want you to accept him as a brother in the Lord. So there's a whole lot we could talk to in, in, related to this whole issue of slavery. But I want to 
continue, if I can, for just a moment uh, to, uh, if you'll go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to dig into the text with you. First Peter chapter 2. Let's go back to verse 18. Paul is talking to slaves and apparently to Christian slaves. Again, because he's writing this letter to the church. Slaves, submit yourselves. There's that word submit again. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Notice this phrase, with all respect. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And he says in verse 19, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. I want you to notice this wording because this is so important what Peter is trying to help these Christian slaves understand. Verse 19, for it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain, the physical pain of what kind of suffering? Unjust. What is unjust suffering? Tell me, what is unjust suffering? You don't deserve it. You're getting something you don't deserve. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because... He is conscious of God because he is trying to live out his faith. But, in contrast to that, verse 20, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good, there's that phrase that you're you're suffering, but you're suffering for doing good and you endure it, it is commendable Before God. The message seems to be that we are called to live out our faith. Even in the worst of circumstances. You don't have to live in the perfect environment in order to live out your faith. You don't have to work in a perfect environment. In order to live out your faith. Our goal should always be. To do the will of God. And to demonstrate the grace of God. And I've got four other scriptures I can't even get to. Related to slavery and living out your faith. I'll be happy to give them to you later if you want to get them. But in all four of those scriptures. that he, Where Paul primarily is writing to these Christian slaves. In all four references, he basically is instructing them, your goal is not to let your environment determine your faith. Your goal is to live out your faith in spite of your environment. That if your faith is real, you can live it it out even as a slave. So your goal is simply to do the will of God and to demonstrate the grace of God. And Paul is saying, and if you've got a harsh master, just keep doing the will of God and demonstrating the grace of God and giving God the opportunity to work 
through your life. By the way, many scholars would say the way that we apply this text in our lives today, the closest way we could apply it is in the employer-employee relationship. Uh, it, it, I, I agree with that. I definitely agree with that, that you could apply it that way. But the difference between the employer and employee relationship and slavery is you get to go home at the end of the day. Now, you may have a hard boss. You may work in a very difficult environment. And if so, then this text would certainly give you some guidance. This text would certainly help you understand how am I to conduct myself in this environment where I have a pagan boss? How am I to conduct myself in this environment where I have a, I have a boss and I have co-workers that are, that are just very hard and difficult to, to deal with? How am I supposed to live out my faith in this office where everybody is against Christianity? I mean, there's all kinds of applications of that text, but the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, you got to go home. And the slaves that Paul was writing to didn't. And yet he says to them, you're called to live out your faith even in the worst of circumstances. And then, here's where he makes the point. This is, th- th- if you haven't tuned in yet, I want you to tune in now. Because this is where he drives home the point. Peter says, okay, let, let me show you why. You're supposed to do this. Let me show you, watch this. Let me show you why you're supposed to suffer unjustly. And that it's okay that if you have to endure pain unjustly. Let me show you why I say that. Peter explains it this way. To this, verse 21, to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered on your behalf. And so you should be willing to suffer on behalf of other unbelievers. Living out your faith to honor God and to help other unbelievers see what it means to know God. Read verse 21 again. It's so powerful. And we'll link verse 22 To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he quotes from Isaiah. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What's the title? Look on your note sheet. What's the title of our study tonight? Following Jesus' example. And that's, the, that's the, 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 the main point Peter's driving home. Slaves, this is a reason you are to submit to others, to your masters. It is because, let me tell you about the one who suffered unjustly. Let me tell you about the one who experienced pain and that he did not deserve. And yet he honored God in the midst of it all. Chuck Swindoll, let me just read you something Chuck Swindoll said. 
Chuck Swindoll said, the only perfect man who ever lived was misunderstood by listeners, maligned by enemies, forsaken by family, betrayed by friends, abandoned by disciples, tortured by law enforcers. And for some reason, I've, my page is missing. <laughs> huh. It stops at, at, I had six pages, it stops at five. Uh, apparently didn't get one off the printer or something. But that's fine, we'll continue on. But here's Chuck Swindoll's point. His point was simply this. The one who has suffered the most unjustly was not a slave, but the one who suffered the most unjustly was Jesus. And you are to follow his example. I mean, if there was anybody who, who, who could call down fire from heaven and get even, my goodness, it would have been Jesus. If there was anybody who said, I'll tell you what, you might get away with it right now, but when I get back to heaven, I'm going to, be, I'm, I'm, I'm going to even the score. If there's anybody who could have said, I tell you what, I am taking names and I do not forget. Or he could have said, I don't get mad, I just get even. And buddy, it's going to be fun to get even with you. And yet he did none of that. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, I love this, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Can I tell you, just write this down somewhere. Sometimes you have to say, God, he's in your hands. And I'm in your hands. And I'm leaving it with you. He's in your hands. And I'm in your hands. And I'm trusting you because you judge justly. I'm debating about whether to tell you this story. Um, I'm trying to realize that I'm online. Um, I'll just say this. I'll just say this much. There was a man one time who cheated me in a big way. And he and I went back and forth for a while regarding that. And finally, I said to him on the phone one day, I said, I know what you did, and you know what you did. More importantly, God knows what you did. And I'm going to leave it in his hands. We ended the conversation. One or two years later, he contacted me. I don't remember exactly. It was one or two years later. He contacted me and said, I've never forgotten what you said. And I can't get away from it. And I want to make it right. Sometimes you just have to let God judge justly. Sometimes you just have to say, God, he's in your hands. And I'm in your hands. And I'm trusting you to judge justly. That's what Jesus did. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. We may come back to these verses. They are so rich. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And I don't think that's a reference to physical healing. We can talk about that if you want to. I don't think it's a reference to physical healing. I think it's a reference to spiritual healing. He's writing to Christians. And he's saying it was by his wounds that you were healed spiritually. It was by his wounds that your sins were forgiven. It was by his wounds that you were made whole. And then he says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now... You have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. There's two phrases I want you to note before we end. He says, and I want you to note these on your, on your note sheet or, or mark them in your Bible. But you were, but now. Look for those two phrases. But you were, for, I'm sorry, for you were, but now. You see that in verse 25? For you were like sheep going astray. That's the way you used to be. That's the way you used to live. That was your old life. For you were that. But now, in the present tense, you're different. Now, in the present tense, you don't live the way you used to live. Now, you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer. Of your souls. The overseer sometimes is translated bishop in the New Testament. It's just that there is an appointed office of somebody that oversees or who's watching out for. And and Peter is saying, ultimately, Jesus is not only the shepherd of your soul, but he's the one appointed to oversee you, to protect you, and to provide for you, and to minister to you. Not just to your body, but to your soul. Your body might experience pain. But your soul is in His hands. Your body might be destroyed, but your soul is in His hands. He is the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. Well, thank you for being here tonight. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for your word. And I know we probably just barely scratched the surface of the truth that is there, but... Help us to, to understand that we are indeed to live out our faith even in those times and even in those places where it's hard to do so. We are to live out our faith in you. We are to honor your name. And we are to demonstrate what it means to know Christ. Help us to do that, especially for these dear people, Lord, who, who may have to go to work tomorrow and they're, and they're working in a very hard place. Help them to live out their faith for your sake and for your glory. And I pray that in Jesus' name.